Well, good morning. Welcome to this, our fifth and final series, uh, sessions in our Apostle Creed series. Uh, really happy to be with you this morning. I want to say thanks again to Henry for taking us last week while I was out of town. Very much appreciated. Uh, come on in, find a seat. You might need to pull one up or you might get stuck in the front row here where all the cool kids sit. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, as we have, let's begin with saying the creed together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into the dead. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's do a quick summary of uh, the part of the creed covered last week. Uh, you know, first we have the ascension. Uh, the idea goes something like this. The end of his ministry, he's been resurrected. He spends 40 days with his disciples. And then the incarnate son leaves the earth in ways that are kind of shocking to his disciples. Remember, they're standing there looking up going, uh, what? <laughs> he leaves the earth for now. But the ascension, this is important, the ascension is not really about his absence. It's not about him being gone. It's about him actually being present in an even fuller way. What do I mean? Well, he goes into the direct presence of the Father, but then he sends the Spirit to be with us. And then he's coming back. So we might ask, oh, it's not there. We might ask, what's he doing? right? He's left. What's he doing? He's advocating for us. Remember, we are in Christ, so we are with him even now. He's representing us. He's bringing us to the Father. Okay, where is he? Right? You can think through this logic. Uh, the risen Christ had a physical body, right? Okay. Physical bodies have locations, they're somewhere in time and space. Where is he? Right? I mean, could you get on a rocket ship? And if it had enough fuel, could you find the ascended Jesus? Where is he? And I must confess to you, I don't know. I don't even really know how to begin to answer that question. But there's something I do know. I know where to find him. I know how to get to him. We do it on the first Sunday of every month when we come to his table. We partake in his body and his blood. And the Holy Spirit connects us to the body and blood of that incarnate son. Now, different views of what's going on with the bread and the wine, I'm not getting in that today. The big idea I'm trying to point, though, is if you're looking to find Jesus of Nazareth, if you're looking to connect with him in his body and his blood, there he is at the table through the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll get to that in just a bit here. Uh, 
He's at the Father's right hand, the creed goes on to say. And very quickly, the idea here is that Jesus holds the power of God in his own hands. To be seated at the right hand of the Father is, of course, a metaphor that talks about authority and power. He is the rightful ruler of all the earth, as he sits at the Father's right hand. And he will come to judge the living and the dead. Uh, the idea is that just as he left in the body, he will return in the body. And when he does, he will set everything right. Judgment is actually a really good thing in that regard. Uh, it is when Christ returns and God wins without exception, without asterisks, <laughs> without any qualification, God's victory will be finalized and complete when he comes as judge. So in that sense, judgment is a really good thing. But there's another sense in which judgment is a good thing. It's actually really loving to separate the righteous from the sinful, the, the right from the wrong. When he is completely victorious, he will separate from us those last vestiges of sin and dark thoughts and evil and wrong motives. Judgment comes to us to purify us to finalize the work that God is doing. And that's a really good thing. Another aspect, it says the living and the dead. Now that's important because it speaks to this completeness of victory that Christ has when he returns. The comprehensiveness of judgment means that no one gets away with it. You know, famously in history, Hitler was never held accountable by any human powers, right? Does Hitler get away with it? No. All are accountable to God. But for the sake of time, let's clip on here to our third section, because I want to make sure we finish and finish well today. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And as we get into this third section, I want to again remind us of the Trinitarian thought, Father, Son, Spirit, that is expressed even here in this creed. Right? Uh, the creed has expressed who the Father is, who the Son is, and what they have done for us. So you might then ask, great, how does that come to me? How does that show up in my life? Who brings that to me? And the answer is the Spirit. Uh, I'll get to this in a bit, but actually, let me, let me go back now because now is a good time. You might sort of think, like, why is this random hodgepodge list of things? We, spirit, and then church, and then saints, and then free. Actually, there's a logic here. The spirit brings everything in this section to us as believers. This is a list of the fruits of the spirit, what the spirit brings. The phrase communion of saints. All right, can I ask, we'll put a pin in it, and in about 10 to 15 minutes, we'll dive right in, okay? Promise we'll get there. Yep, good question. Right, so there's this Trinitarian thought. And what I want us to remember is that there is this movement we see in the Christian faith and in the Christian story. It starts with the very inner life of God, who God is in himself, independent from the world. Remember, God the Father is always fathering the Son. 
eternally, without beginning or end, uh, timelessly, God is giving his being to the Son. And the Son is actively receiving that being. Uh, remember the language begotten might get at what we're talking about here, this relationship in the inner life of God. But when it comes to the Spirit, if he is also begotten, you know, child A and child B, there actually would be nothing to distinguish them, and you'd wind up with abinity, right? Because it's not like this one came first, this one came second. There's no time here. There's no sequence. You follow me? Does that make sense? So the relationship between the Father, Son, and the Spirit has to be a bit different in nature in order for the Spirit to be a different person within God's inner life. And that language is sometimes spoken of as the Spirit is breathed or proceeds from the Father. Uh, Jesus, remember, in his ministry says, I will breathe on you and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. Of course, that's a metaphor talking about how the Spirit comes from the Father and the Son. So we use that you know, metaphorical language of breathe to talk about what's going on in God's inner life in the three persons. You know, some theologians in church history have described the Spirit as the love between the Father and the Son. And that love is so strong that it actually creates, and it creates is a bad word, it actually constitutes a third person. I think that's an interesting and helpful way to think about it. Uh, that, that's, I think that gives me some purchase there. That love is so perfect, so strong, so deep, that there's another involved as that love who is a person in and of himself. So here we have it, the inner life of God, Father, Son, Spirit, reflected in his works in the world. Now this is important, remember. Um, God is God, Father, Son, Spirit, completely independent of what he makes. It, it, right? You can imagine it's possible that if God wanted to, he could have decided not to create anything. No universe, no nothing, no angels, no, no. Just be God as God. And he would still be Father, Son, Spirit. Okay. But he has decided to create. In his freedom and in his love, he has made the universe. And the way that he works in that world reflects what's going on in his inner life. You with me so far? Does this make sense? So uh, in, in the scriptures, we have different descriptive roles of the Father and the Son and the Spirit in the world that reflect God's inner life, that are fitting, but don't make him Father, Son, and Spirit. That's God in himself. So the Father sends the Son. The Son becomes incarnate, born of the Virgin Mary, the Son dies on the cross and rises again. The Son sends the Holy Spirit to empower the church. Those are different roles. Remember a couple weeks ago we said, Arius points to this Bible verse where Jesus says, the Father is greater than I. See, the Son is not God like the Father is God. You remember this discussion, right? Well, here, I can flesh that out a little bit more. That verse is talking about their roles in the world. The Son is sent by the Father, so in that sense is greater, but in his being, in the inner life of God, the Father and I are one, he says. You see the difference here? Uh, technical terms, uh, ad intra is the Latin term, God in his inner life, ad extra, 
God in relationship to the world. Um, I'll do this quickly here. We speak of each person doing different things. As I said, the Father sends the Son, the Son dies on the cross, the Spirit comes down at Pentecost. But we also must remember that when God acts in the world, he never does anything in isolation. One person of the Trinity never does anything in isolation of the others. Let me explain real quick. The only thing the Father does that the Son is completely not involved in, and the Spirit's not involved, is fathering and proceeding or breathing. The only thing the Son does that the Father and the Spirit not are involved in is being sunned or receiving his existence and the Spirit flowing through him, so on and so forth with the Spirit. Okay, great, but Sean, you might say, the Bible says that the Son died on the cross. Yeah, that is appropriate. The Son was the main actor there. But uh, St. Augustine, early church, well, late church father, gave us a really helpful illustration or analogy here. In your operations as a human, you have some different faculties, some different features. Uh, you have a will. You can choose to do things, right? You have a, uh, a memory, right? And you have an intellect. You can think through things, you can remember things, and you can choose things. Now, do you ever do one of those things without in any way using the other two? Do you ever think through something without also using your memory and without also making choices? No, right? You follow me? Those things always happen together, although it is proper to say, I chose to have Raisin Bran this morning, but I happen to remember what that is, and I happen to understand it's pretty healthy for me compared to my other options. You with me? In the same sort of way, when God works in the world, we can say the Son did this, the Father did this, the Spirit did that, but the others are always actively involved because God works as a unity in the world that ways that reflect his inner life. You with me? That was pretty deep, but I hope that was clear. You follow me? Because that gets us to the Spirit. The Spirit and his fruits. As I said, this third section is all about what the Spirit does in the world what he brings us. His work is not yet finished. If you remember at the very beginning in the story of creation, the spirit broods and exudes over the waters in the process of creation. Even now the spirit broods over the human race, bringing forth life. In this case, the church. Uh, the, the spirit, as we'll get to, undoes all sorts of things that sin has done. It, you know, it's really interesting. You remember in Acts chapter 2, everyone hears other people speaking in languages, in their own language. You know, Peter and the apostles, they stand up and they just start talking. And if you're Russian, you hear it in Russian. And if you're German, you hear it in German. And, you know, these weren't alive that time. But you get the point. If you're Polynesian, you hear it in whatever dialect that might be. If you're Indonesian or uh, Afrikaans is your language, they would talk and you would hear it in your own language. That's a miracle. Why is that interesting? Because it is the undoing of the Tower of Babel, where in sin and hubris, humans were divided as they rebelled against God and their punishment was being struck and not understanding each other. Well, look what's being undone when the Spirit comes. The Spirit tears down divisions. 
The Holy Spirit is the how of God with us. God applies our salvation through the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is not some metaphor for the power of God, but the Spirit is a person, God himself, who's coming to us, who's relating to us, uniting us with himself. That's how we are in Christ, through the work of the Spirit he has sent. And the Spirit continues to work miracles in us. The miracle of Christmas, the incarnation through the power of the Spirit. The miracle of Easter, raised from the dead by the power of God. That miraculous power of the Spirit is alive and well in us. Bringing us together, forgiving our sins, and all the rest. So let's move on to the next phrase. The Holy Catholic Church. Now, you might ask, why would the creed talk about the church? You know, we're talking about God, we're talking about what he does. Why bring up the church at all? Well, I mean, the first reason is because the church is what the Spirit does in the world. To believe in the Holy Spirit means you must believe in the church, because the Spirit produces the church, and we see in the book of Acts. But even further... I believe in the Holy Catholic Church is something we say because we have faith in the church's true identity. that She really is holy and Catholic. And you have to have faith in that because the empirical evidence points otherwise. You ever heard it said, uh, if you find the perfect church, don't join it, you'll ruin it? <laughs> We've all seen very ugly things in the church. We've seen churches, the church, and its manifestations that are not holy, that are not Catholic, united, or anything like that. They're places of abuse, of dysfunction, of exclusion and division. So when we say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, we are by faith saying we know what the church is not yet, her true identity. That she's not yet what she really is. She's in progress. What is the church? Uh, the, and one way to think about this, what is the church? And again, not in a, a sort of sociological or very practical sense, but in a deep theological sense. What is the church? Well, the church is proof that Jesus died, resurrected, ascended, and reigns on high. Here on earth, in human form, it is proof of what Jesus has done. The church is the product of the Holy Spirit. All Christians, past, present, future, every place here on earth, united together in this spiritual reality. But there's something that uh, perhaps might be counterintuitive for some of us here in the West, at least. The church comes before the individual Christian. It's a common mistake to think that the church is sort of, well, these Christians, she's a Christian, she's a Christian, she's a Christian, he's a Christian, and they aggregate and they come together, and when you group them into a group, that makes the church. Actually, it's the reverse, so think about it. If you got together a group of professional baseball players and said, all right, now that you're all in the same room, you're a team, they'd be like, 
what? No, we're not. I'm signing. I don't, we don't have uniforms. The Chicago Cubs, as a team, precedes the players who happen to be playing on that team this year or at any particular moment, right? You know, the team is there first, and then individuals come in and out of it. And I think that's a helpful analogy or illustration here of the theological priority of the church. The body of Christ exists first, and then members enter into it. The plural of disciple is church. Well, the creed says that the church is holy, and you're like, really? <laughs> Again, uh, I've been around church enough to see some ugly things. Uh, but the church is holy in two senses. I mean, for, well, first and foremost, it's holy because it's made up of those who God has redeemed, God has remade in the image of his Son. So the church is holy in the sense of descriptive, and that is in process, or I wouldn't say aspirational, but that is an ongoing process, that the church is being conformed to the image of Jesus. But the church is holy in a second sense. Think of the way that in the temple in the Old Testament, certain instruments used at, uh, at the temple, say spoons or, or other things in worship, were holy. What made that spoon holy and this one at home for soup? Nothing different about it. It's been set apart for God's purposes, right? And in that sense, the church is holy. The church has been set apart, especially for God's purposes. To love the poor, to serve God, to proclaim the gospel, to show God's glory, and all the rest. So you can think of this word holy having two senses. One a description that's becoming more and more true and will be finalized when Jesus returns. She really is morally and spiritually holy. And two, set apart, called to complete God's mission, set apart for God's purposes in the world through the work of the Spirit. We also have this word Catholic, and even here on the slide, you'll notice despite the uh, nomenclature of the dots. I did not put it with a capital C because I don't want to have any confusion here. Uh, the Christian church in the Roman Catholic tradition calls themselves the Roman Catholic Church with a capital C, but they don't have a monopoly on the word Catholic. Uh, this word Catholic was being used uh, from the very, very beginning, long before even the East and the Western churches had split. Now, you'll notice when we print this Apostles' Creed in the bulletin, there's a little asterisk, and if you follow it to the back, in fine print, it says Catholic. That is, the true Christian church of all times and places. The church as a spiritual reality. Now, there may be different congregations, there are, different denominations and uh, brands of Christianity, there are. But strictly speaking, there is only one church. You and I are part of it, as are many of our brothers and sisters in different places, even gathering this morning. And it goes something like this. We see very clearly that the gospel message is not limited by nationality, ethnicity, place in history, family name, culture, socioeconomic status, rich, poor, gender, race, any other of the groupings that divide us in the world do not apply in the gospel, are torn down 
in the gospel message and therefore do not apply in the church. Rich, poor, African in the 4th century, North American in the 21st century, Asian in the 17th century, we are all one church together. Uh, before I clip on, someone asked me a question. Not anything that's on your mind, what we've been talking about today. Someone asked me a question. Good. Does the, church, the word church refer to ecclesiastical institution, or does it refer to the people of God wherever and however represented? Depends on who you ask. <laughs> uh, you might not be surprised. There's, uh, my Roman, there's disagreement here. My Roman Catholic brothers and sisters might answer that question a bit differently than we Protestants would, but here's the lay of the land. Uh, you have something called the, the invisible church. That is the spiritual reality, as I've been you know, speaking, all Christians from all times and places. But like, you don't know exactly who's who, right? There can be people in a church on a Sunday morning who aren't part of the church, right? And there can be people, you know, sadly, perhaps lost on a desert island or something who are part of the church, but don't show up at church because they can't. You with me, right? There's this disconnect between the visible and invisible church. You know what would be great for me as a pastor? be super handy if I had halo vision. That is, I could see a halo over everyone who's a genuine Christian in their heart and who's not. That would make things a lot easier for me some days. <laughs> but sadly, I don't have that. What do I have? Well, I have the invisible church manifested in visible form, the visible church. Mayflower Congregational and those who show up and are part of this community week in and week out. Uh, Congregation of the Good Shepherd in Beijing, where I happen to serve last. You can name any of these churches. These are visible churches. And that matters, right? These ecclesial bodies matter. Now, here's the quick difference. The, some of uh, my brothers and sisters might say that it is the ecclesial authority that comes first, or that without it you can't have the invisible spiritual reality. I would flip that. But we all, to some degree, make this distinction. We have to, lest, unless we had halo vision. Yeah. Without going much further into it. Thank you, that's a good question. Yeah. On one level, real quick, I want to answer a little bit more. On one level, the visible church needs to do very practical things. Like we need to have insurance for our roof right? Like, we need to pay our bills. We need to have a, a council who leads us and make decisions. On another level, the scriptures say that God has given to the church certain leaders, certain roles, apostles, elders, uh, evangelists, you know, the list goes on there. And those leaders, that, that hierarchical, maybe not even hierarchical, but that, that structure, those roles matter. But you can't reduce the spiritual reality just to the visible reality. Good. Yeah, thank you. All right, let's, uh, how am I doing? What time is it? 29. Let's move on. Communion of Saints. Sorry, it was a little more than 10 minutes, but I did get here eventually. The Communion of Saints is an interesting phrase because it talks about this new life that we have together. 
It's fascinating. In the second century, there was a Greek philosopher named Celsus, and he wrote this scathing attack on the Christian faith. They're cannibals, right? They're incestuous. They believe ridiculous things. Why would they think we're cannibals? Communion, yep. Why would they think we're incestuous? We call each other brother and sister, right? I get it. But the whole point is that this scathing critique by Celsus was really deeply confused and uh, but still powerful in the culture. So this brilliant Egyptian scholar named Origen was asked to reply to it. And he wrote this great book. This book might be the greatest defense in Christian history of defending our faith. So he writes this thick, detailed book where he says, listen, we're not cannibals. Uh, this idea that there is one God who is Father, Son, Spirit is logically coherent and, in fact, coordinates with the way God has been working in the world. You know, standard Christian apologetics defending our faith and its reasonableness. But before he dives into all of that intellectual work, he starts off by saying, the way of Jesus doesn't actually need a defense. That's weird because he's about to do it, <laughs> but he's making an important point. Uh, he wrote at the beginning of this work, Jesus is always being falsely accused, and there is never a time when he's not being accused. He is still silent in the face of this and does not answer with his own voice. But he makes his defense in the lives of his genuine disciples, for their lives cry out the real facts and defeat all false charges. There's plenty of space for an intellectual defense of the Christian faith. But first and foremost, it is the lives of the saints, the communion of saints, that defends any false accusations, that declares who Jesus is and what he's done. So that's the communion of the saints. This new life, the saints, sorry? Ask it, no, ask it. Who are the saints? What I'm about to say, uh, my Catholic brothers and sisters would agree with me. Saints are in this room. The saints are all believers. Saint, hagios in the Greek, simply means holy one. One who has been set apart by God. One who belongs to Jesus. In the New Testament, Paul frequently opens his letters to this church or that church. To all the saints in Ephesus. To all the saints in Philippi. Not the leaders there. The church there. Saints, at least lowercase s, is every believer. Now, having said that, there are some Christian traditions who've developed this idea of heroes or examples to emulate, call them capital S saints. We may or may not disagree about that. Okay, I actually have some reservations, but fine. Uh, in principle, having good faithful examples of those who've gone before us is a good thing. To turn it into a hierarchy and patreon of, of super Christians who are elite believers above and the rest, well, that I would have some theological problems with. But let's just set that aside. We all agree if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you're a saint. Good question. Thank you. And this idea is 
everyone's a saint because everyone has received new life from the Holy Spirit as Christians. We are all saints and we are united together in the life of Jesus. We are brought together in this community, this spiritual community that then manifests itself in this group of believers who meets in this building. Uh, to be part of the community of saints, the communion of saints, is to be part of the story of Jesus' life, to be a retelling of the story of Jesus' life through what the Holy Spirit is doing in us. That we are united together in the Spirit because we're united with Jesus. That's what makes us saints. Yeah, united to Christ through the Spirit. The communion of saints is a statement about the Holy Spirit's work, not just in us individually, but also in us together as a church, capital C, Catholic Universal Church. So it's way more than a potluck, although potlucks help. The forgiveness of sins. And let's talk about the Donatist controversy. This is really interesting in Christian history. Here we are in the fourth century. We're at 303 AD. There's this growing group of Christians within the Roman Empire who are largely on the outsides, who are excluded, who are actually uh, being persecuted. And the emperor Diocletian orders this major crackdown on the Christians, like intense persecutions. Uh, imagine it, you're a Christian. and because you're known as a Christian, your property is seized. Any Christian books you have is burned. Even Christian buildings and places of worship are being destroyed. All Christian leaders are put in prison. Man, that's intense. You imagine, like, seriously, the cops roll in and arrest me and commandeer your house and kick you out because you're a Christian. Like, that's what was happening. And the Roman Empire said, there's a way out of this. This is pretty unpleasant. You don't like this persecution, do you? No. So here's what you got to do. Renounce your faith, sacrifice to the pagan gods, deny your baptism. You do those things, you're a free woman. You're a free man. Walk out the door. Go, go get your stuff. No problems here if you do that. If you don't, we might just kill you. In fact, we... We probably will kill you. So what do Christians do? Well, many of them went to their death, brave and faithful martyrs who said, Jesus is Lord, and I will not say otherwise. If you're going to kill me for it, so be it. Some did. But some tried to, uh, you know, get around this. Maybe, you know, cross your fingers. Sure, I deny Jesus. Here's some meat for your idols. Can I just go now, please? And some in their, you know, fear, uh, maybe did renounce their faith in their hearts and also with their words. But either way, many Christians did it to save their lives. Okay, after a, a period of intense persecution, that then dies away. The emperor and the empire changes their policies. Christians are now tolerated to, to some meaningful degree. And things return to normal. Oh, but there are problems. There are huge questions. What do we do with these traitors? I mean, you can imagine. These people come back to church like nothing really happened. 
But others people were really incensed by that. Can you imagine this? Listen, my br- you could imagine, put yourself in this historical situation. My brother said Jesus is Lord and they killed him for it. You committed treason to the faith. You're a coward and you sacrificed and denied your baptism. You just stroll back in here and think it's okay? You need to start over. You need to get baptized again. You are not a believer. It's a reboot for you. And then even further, what about the clergy who sacrificed, the pastors and the leaders in the church, the bishops, who, to save their lives, did this? Well, they're unfaithful. And, you know, one of them baptized me. Does my baptism still count? Has it become invalidated because of the faithlessness of the person who performed it? You with me? These are huge questions that the church faced in the fourth century. There was a time of intense struggle about this. Uh, there's a historical situation. And here are some key questions that emerged as the church began to work through this. Uh, because it becomes a matter of forgiveness. What do you do if you stray from Christ's path in life? And significantly so. Dramatically so in this case. Is the Christian community to be a church of the pure only? Is there room, any room, for weak, uncertain souls? Are bad Christians allowed in the church? Those are the questions that came up out of this. And through this, uh, by the way, particularly led by St. Augustine and his theological acumen, some answers begin to emerge. And the church very strongly decided in the Donatist controversy, the community of the church is to include everyone who confesses Jesus. This is not a club for the spiritual elite. This is a place for disciples who fail, but yet still are disciples. So those who came back, if you had every reason to believe their faith and repentance was sincere, despite the really horrible thing they might have done, they are just as much part of the church. They don't have to start over. They have been baptized into the one baptism of Christian faith, and they can receive forgiveness. Now, there are some practical matters we need to work through about making it right and making it whole, but they are not a second-tier, second-class Christian. And that gets us to this key idea of grace. And the Donatist controversy uh, solidified uh, what was already there in the early church and in the New Testament, well, in really all the scriptures. Because we need to be repeatedly reminded that it's by God's grace we receive the forgiveness of sins. And it's only then, when we have been forgiven of our sins, that we can be faithful. See, we tend to reverse that. We tend to think that because we are, to some degree, good or deserving or faithful, then God forgives us. But the gospel insists loudly and offensively that it's entirely by God's grace. Here's an example. Imagine someone who didn't care about God, lived a pretty ugly life, did some terrible things, and on their deathbed, 10 minutes before they die, genuinely believed in their heart in Jesus and became a Christian. Does that seem unfair to you? I'll be honest, it kind of does to me. Like, you mean I lived my whole life following Jesus 
and you receive the same basic salvation and forgiveness that I do? And then I remember, oh, I just missed grace. That logic that I just said there doesn't understand God's grace. It's by the grace of God's method, entering into our world, dying on the cross, not because of anything we've earned or anything we deserve. It's that non-fairness that strikes us as perhaps even offensive, but that is the offense of the gospel. God's forgiveness shouldn't come to anyone. When you start to think, well, I deserve it a bit more than she does, you've actually failed to realize no one deserves it. And it's in that God, sorry, the grace of God alone that we will find shocking, beautiful healing and freedom. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. The Donatrist controversy said, and forced the church to really think through it and speak it carefully and clearly. It is by grace that we are Christians. Quickly, what is forgiveness of sins? See, we have to think through this concept theologically in close connection of what is being forgiven and who is doing the forgiving. Remember, sins are forgiven by God. God is valuable without limit. His goodness knows no ends. His worth, dignity, and importance couldn't be greater. And so to sin against God is a serious thing, even if we don't quite understand or perceive that. And if God is really God, if God loves and cares for those who are sinned against, those who are harmed by our sins. And if God is God and is good and holy, sin against him is very serious. He can't just shrug and be like, yeah, you know, boys will be boys, girls will be girls. No, 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 no. That's not who God is. So divine forgiveness, the forgiveness of sins, comes at great cost. Remember last section, he died, was crucified. That is how our sins are forgiven. He takes his, uh, our condemnation and guilt and makes it his own. And it's because of the forgiveness of God that we can live by faith, that we have new life in the Spirit, that we can please and serve the Lord. The forgiveness of sins. The resurrection of the body. And here, um, I harp on this over and over because it's running throughout the creed. I think it's a message we here in the West today need to hear. Bodies matter. Bodies matter. Remember in section one, the creed affirms the value of the material world. God is the maker of heaven and earth. He's a good creator of all things, spiritual things and physical things including our bodies. Bodies matter. And in the second section, the sun becomes part of this physical world and takes on a human body in the incarnation from the womb of a woman, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffers in the flesh, in the body. Crucified, died, and was buried, and is raised in the body. 
bodies matter. Well, we get to the third section here. One day we will be resurrected in the body. As Jesus rose from the grave never to die again, so will we. At the end of history, we will rise from the grave never to die again. Now, Scripture doesn't give us a lot of detail about what that looks like. If, you know, famously, you have Jesus in the tomb, and then he's found, well, rather, they find an empty tomb. That process, that description, wouldn't that be fascinating if you could be there and, like, taking notes? But we're not told that. We're actually told very little about what this new resurrection body will exactly look like. But the important thing we're told is that we will never die again. The point, though, is that since our bodies will be raised, since bodies matter, sorry, I am like four steps ahead here. Uh, since the, our bodies matter, they matter today. And that has some really profound uh, ethical implications for the calling of the church, the mission of the church to be God's hands and feet in the world. It is not enough to minister to someone's soul, to proclaim a message. We must also fill their bellies. Why? Because bodies matter. Uh, the injustice that people experience in the body from the principalities and powers of the world, from unjust economic and political systems, we must speak to those because bodies matter. They matter enough to God for him to rise them again and to give them eternal life. And in the resurrection of the body, we have new life in the body. In many places in the New Testament, it talks about this, but particularly 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Our flesh, our body will be resurrected uh, and it works kind of backwards. It starts with eternity, with an everlasting, undying body, and draws human life up into that even now. Because of the forgiveness of sins, we are not left in our state of death and decay that we experience here. But we have a goal to restore humanity to a, a higher way of existence, a new life in a new body, that will live eternally through resurrection. In other words, the resurrection of the body means that death is defeated. Not just on Easter did Jesus rise from the grave, but we who belong to him will share in that defeat of death as well. This is my favorite funeral sermon. This is the power of the gospel. And we are resurrected into the fullness of life. Remember, Lazarus was raised again, only to die again. We will never have a second funeral. Uh, for the sake of time, let me clip on here. Uh, there's this idea, uh, it's often labeled the general resurrection. This resurrection of the body is what it's talking about here. Uh, I've been focusing so far on the resurrection of believers, but in the, this idea of the general resurrection, the resurrection of the body, it's not just believers. No one is left out. Uh, if you remember that old, uh, was it Clint Eastwood film, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly? Who gets resurrected? The good, the bad, and the ugly. 
I don't have a scripture verse quite for that, but I hope you see the point that I'm making. This final resurrection will leave no one out. John chapter 5, Jesus suggests that there is a resurrection unto life and a resurrection unto judgment and many other passages too. Uh, This is part of he will return to judge the living and the dead. Everyone must reckon for their lives before God. Those who belong to Christ, everlasting life. Those who do not, or the, the wicked, or yeah, I, I don't want to get into that in its detail, but there are some who seemingly will not. And if that's, uh, if that's what happens there, then it's a resurrection to defeat in God's final judgment. Now, again, we're towing quickly onto my PhD topic, hell, and I don't want to get too deep into it. I wrote a whole PhD on the topic of hell. I can tell you all about this. Uh, But you should never ask someone about their PhD topic because they don't shut up. (laughs) Right. The point that I'm making here, though, is that God's victory in the end includes resurrecting everyone and defeating all sin, death, and evil. That is the good news of the gospel. That is a source of comfort and hope for believers. In the end, God wins. And the life everlasting. Where am I at with time? Could someone tell me what time it is? Great. And the life everlasting. Now, the English translation here might be a little bit misleading. Uh, Living forever versus eternal life. Life everlasting, that is, just living forever. Well, in and of itself, I'm not sure that that's necessarily good. Uh, about five years ago, maybe a little more, five years ago, there was this TV show called The Good Place. Anyone seen The, the Good Place? Hilarious, fascinating, really funny writing. But the idea is that it depicts the afterlife. These people die and suddenly they're in the afterlife. Uh, but there's no God there. There's actually just a point system Good deeds and bad deeds. Good deeds bring your number up. Bad deeds bring your number down. Hope you made the cut. Uh, and it explores. The, it's, it's, it, so that's the afterlife in the imaginary world of this TV show. And then explores the meaning of good and bad deeds, motives. It's actually really, really interesting. But what I want to get to here, uh, sorry for the spoilers, but at the end of the series, the main characters eventually spend uncountable years living this great life. Everything they wanted. But they don't die. And since they have no death hanging over them, they find that their life lacks definition, that it really doesn't have a meaning. And so eventually these characters choose to walk through a gate into their own annihilation where they just, like a wave falls back to the sea, they cease to exist. It's this fascinating picture because you're, you're invested in these characters, you're along for the ride, and then in the end you find that a heaven without God is actually not very satisfying eventually. So when the creed says the life everlasting, it's talking about eternal life, not just unending life. Because uh, eternal life, while it does go on forever, it's about the quality of that life. It's true life, the life that Jesus gives us. Remember, as Jesus says, I came that, may, that they may have life and have it abundantly. And eternal life is unendingly satisfying. 
goes on forever and is deeply good because it is in God's direct presence. We have wonderful things in creation, the wonders of philosophy and art, the natural world, the Grand Canyon, uh, friendships, the love of family and friends, all of those good things. Eventually, if you take that for thousands and thousands of years, but don't have God in the picture, it'll get exhausting. You'll, You'll master it. You'll know all that there is to know about art or philosophy. You'll experience everything there is to experience. And then you'll just be done. But not so with God. If God is in the picture, if we will spend eternity knowing and learning and experiencing and loving God, there will always be more. You can always go deeper. The life everlasting, eternal life, is so good because God is so good. And forever, we get to explore and learn and mine the depths of who God is in a loving relationship with him in his direct presence. And this life everlasting, or better, eternal life, starts today doesn't start when you die. doesn't start when you get to heaven, whatever that means. It starts today. We experience this new life when we become believers. We live in expectation of the fullness of this as that is hidden in us. This resurrection reality, one of my favorite verses, passages in the Bible is Revelation chapter 21. I saw a new heavens and a new earth. God himself will be his, uh, their people, and they will, uh, he will be their God. They will be his people, and he will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. No more pain, no more suffering, for death has been defeated. Amen. Life, right here, right now, is available through the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit, in this third section, that brings us that life everlasting even today for us as believers. And that is just a beginning of the mysterious, wonderful, beautiful truths of the great Christian faith as expressed in the Apostles' Creed. If you remember our first week, if you were along with us then, we do things when we say this creed. It forms us. It shapes us. It, it, through these words, these ancient words that we Christians share together in many languages, tongues, expressions, translations, the Spirit works in us as we say these truths, as we wrestle with them, and as we live them out together as a church. So thank you for coming along for this uh, ride here with this series. I have found it deeply fun and satisfying, and it's been really good. I think I can say that this is not the end of things like this here at Mayflower, but just the beginning. I don't have dates or firm details yet, but uh, we will continue these types of conversations in all sorts of different topics and areas that are important for us to think through Christianly and live out faithfully. So, uh, how am I at with time? What's my time? Two minutes. Someone asked me a question. We'll end with a question. Someone asked me a question.
Yeah, soul sleep. So the question is about soul sleep. You have a friend, I'm a re report for the microphone, who, uh, you know, lovely Christian, reads her, reads her Bible and uh, believes in soul sleep, this idea that when you die, your soul sleeps, you wait there in the grave, and then you awaken in the general, rev general resurrection. Uh, there are a couple different views here, and different uh, Christians have thought about this a little bit differently. Now, uh, there are passages in Scripture that talk about death euphemistically. So-and-so uh, has fallen asleep, the Apostle Paul says. And, you know, perhaps that's a metaphor, but what does the metaphor exactly say? Perhaps could lend to this. You also think of Jesus on the cross to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, it could well be that he died that day. He was in soul sleep. He was in a coma. He was unconscious. He had no experience of time passing. And, you know, many, many years from even now, thousands and thousands of years, he wakes up at the general resurrection and he's in paradise today, as far as he was concerned. That's possible. Uh, I'm not particularly persuaded by that inter line of interpretation myself, but I, I could see how some believers might get there. The fundamental question is, what makes up a human being? Are you, is your existence as a human being entirely the body? Or do you have some sort of immaterial part, call it a mind or a soul or something like that, in addition to your body? And not speaking metaphorically, but speaking descriptively, like describing your being. Well, different Christians have different views here. Uh, if you think that there's just the body and its functions, you're called a materialist or a monist, uh, if you think that there is a body and a soul, an immaterial part, of some sort in some way, there are many different versions of that, you're a dualist, right? Uh, for the 2,000 years, most of the church has been this, but there are some Christians who are not. I say all that to say, if you're a physicalist, soul sleep is kind of one of your only good options because there is no soul to continue to have conscious existence in the meantime, between your death and the resurrection and the end. But you could also be a dualist and think that, well, God just put your soul in a coma, right? That you're not aware. So you could even be a dualist and hold to soul sleep. Or you could say uh, your soul, your immaterial part, has conscious existence and is aware of the passage of time in the presence of God, but is waiting for the resurrection of the body. What we're talking about is called the intermediate state between your death and the resurrection in the end. So I say, this is a secondary issue. Christians can reasonably disagree. Cards on the table, I guess I'm just a little old-fashioned. I'm, I'm drawn to the dualist position, and I think you do have some degree of conscious existence between death and the general resurrection. There are passages that talk about uh, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and that seems to suggest something like that, but we would need to work out the details. That's the lay of the land. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Good question, yeah. All right, for the sake of time, I'm going to call it there. So thank you so much. Great to be uh, on this journey with you. More is coming, uh, maybe probably uh, this fall after cottage season, but uh, keep, keep tuned. Uh, summer's a little dead, but uh, keep tuned to announcements. Uh, we'll let you know as soon as we've nailed it down. So thank you.